Microphone check. One, two, three. City, city, sibilance, sibilance. Levels check. Good. Sounds good. One, two, three. Rolling and. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is an end-of-the-year bonus episode. It doesn't technically qualify as an official episode of the season, which we finished two weeks ago, but it's certainly an episode nonetheless. And thus, it is still an episode that is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, the Documentary Life Podcast, and the Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. If my math is correct, we're about three and a half years into the documentary life. We've produced 120 episodes, with some more than others full of inspiring and informative documentary-related content. And while we've changed format a few times over those years, as we've continued to evolve in an effort to provide you with the kind of content that best serves your doc filmmaking and lifestyle needs as a doc filmmaker, one thing has always remained constant throughout a consistency and effort and hopefully quality in not only the segments that I produce myself, but also in the conversations that I have with other members of the documentary industry, often filmmakers in the community. I have always strived to have real, honest conversations, not interviews, but genuine conversations, one doc filmmaker to another, that I believe have long been greatly needed in our community. So with that being said, I wanted to share bits of five of my favorite conversations that I've had over the first three and a half years of the podcast. For some of you, these may serve as reminders of those conversations, and for others, they might provide you with glimpses of episodes that you'll want to go back and listen to in their entirety. Whatever the case is for you, I think you'll like and appreciate these wonderful, sometimes quite candid bits of conversations that I've had with respected members of our doc community. And afterwards, if you think to, leave a comment in the show notes or as a member of the TDL Community Facebook group of your own favorite shows or moments from past episodes. I'd love to hear about them. Now, before we get started, I'll just say that this is not a greatest hits of TDL. That would be completely unfair because there are wonderful bits of every conversation we've ever had on the show. Again, these are five selections from some of my favorite conversations that I've had over the three and a half years. And lastly, I wanted to wish everyone a happy new year the world over. May it be a great start to a new decade and may all of your documentary wishes come true this year. If you're subscribed to our TDL newsletter or part of our private Facebook community, then you'll know how excited we are to work more closely with you, our fellow doc lifers, throughout 2020 to help you in making your documentary film projects. The best way for us to do this is to work with you face-to-face so that you can receive valuable information, tips, resources, and advice directly from us and can ask any questions that you have in real time. Getting the answers you need will allow you to take immediate action on making and completing your documentary film. 
That is why we recently launched our full program of weekly live interactive workshops, which cover a multitude of topics on making a documentary film and we'll be continuing to add even more over the coming months. We have a wealth of industry and filmmaking experience that we are going to share with you. Let us save you the time, money, and frustration of learning these things on the fly and allow us to help you confidently and with super-focused clarity move forward with your film. Our first workshop launches Wednesday, the 8th of January, and it's called Going Solo with Your Documentary Filmmaking. In it, we will help you uncover how to make your documentary film with little to no crew, equipment, or experience. Completing this workshop will mean you are more capable, organized, and skilled in making your documentary film on your own. To learn more about our Going Solo with Your Documentary Filmmaking workshop and to take a look at the schedule for our other documentary film workshops, simply go to thedocumentarylife.com slash workshops. Registration is now open with a promotional offer until the end of the year. So don't wait. Secure your spot today at thedocumentarylife.com slash workshops. surprise you that one of my favorite conversations that I've had on this show was with legendary doc filmmaker Steve James. His first doc film, Hope Dreams, has inspired many an independent doc filmmaker over the past nearly two and a half decades since its theatrical release. I'm no exception. In fact, that film was the first documentary I'd ever seen in a theater setting, and it irrevocably changed my perceptions of the possibility of documentary. Leon, because again, Hoop Dreams is the first film, the first documentary certainly that I that I ever saw on the big screen. Uh, I, I imagine you hear that often or have over the years. Uh, I do hear that a yeah. lot, and and it's it's one thing I never get tired of hearing. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, you know, people love Hoop Dreams, and they'll tell me how much they love the movie. But but when I hear when I hear from filmmakers who say that 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 was their entry point into doc filmmaking, mm. it's 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 especially nice to hear that because I've heard that from some pretty darn talented filmmakers over the years, yeah. and 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 it's interesting to me too though because you know i did start to get exposed once i fell in love with documentary then you know then i started to seek out documentaries to watch right. and made a point of seeing them and ones that were very influential to me but but it 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 didn't happen in the way it happened for you and and you know and i think increasingly happens not not with hoop dreams but increasingly happens nowadays for young filmmakers is right. is that the presence of documentaries in our culture is so significant, both not just theatrically, but but in in every respect. Right. That uh, I think now to come along and be a young person who's interested in film, I, I meet a lot of really young filmmakers for yeah. whom Hoop Dreams wasn't the 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 touchstone, but yeah, yeah. but that they just realize that there's a this is something they want to do. They didn't get they didn't fall into documentary like I did in a way. Right. They want to make documentaries. And I think technology certainly has played a part in that as well. I know for me, it's funny, as we're having this conversation, Steve, it, it jogs a memory of uh, uh, I had already seen Hoop Dreams and I'm driving late at night and I'm listening to an extended conversation between yourself and the interviewer. I couldn't even tell you what the program was. Huh. It was it was a moment for me because I remember thinking, 
ah, it's no longer this film thing, this filmmaking thing, it's no longer inaccessible to a guy like me. Um, technology has, has changed, like digital film, like digital video is right there now. And there's, you know, people are making films, digital films. And now here's this guy talking about this unbelievable documentary that I saw. And and now he's like, now he's a name and 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 his film is doing incredibly well. And and I remember that uh, have, you know, hearing that conversation on the radio. So, um yeah, well, well, thank you for that. Years later, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. You know, Steve, what something I'd like to hear, and I and I know I know, know my listeners would also appreciate. Um, I'd love to hear what are any keys to longevity in this industry, in this thing we call doc filmmaking. You know, it, it's not as if you're churning out, you know, over a 25, 30 year period. It's, it's not as if, Steve, you're churning out films every two years. And, and in particular with doc films, and I think you've done a number of log- of the longitudinal variety, it takes time. It takes time to fundraise. It takes time to conceptualize. It takes time to, to spend time with people and families, immersing yourself in a film. And then, of course, there's the post-production and whole distribution afterwards. How in the heck do we stay in the game, Steve? Steve, what's the key to longevity here in this industry? Well, first I should say that I, um, um, even though I don't put out a film every year, hmm. I, you know, I'm not Woody Allen. Uh, I, when I think about it, um, I'd have to do the math on it to yeah. be completely sure. But but since Hoop Dreams came out, which took seven and a half years to make, right, right and right. and it came out in '94. So since then, in the what twenty-four years since, I've probably made between documentaries and I've done, I've done three narrative things. Right. I did you know, this film Prefontaine. I did a couple of TV movies as well some years ago. Yes, I I've probably made I don't know thirteen or fourteen films. Okay, okay, there you go. Um, if you do the math, that comes out every couple of years. You're right. About every couple of years. Yeah. So um, so I have been pretty prolific, and that, I think that's. Part of um, the answer to your question, though, mm. is, is that um, for me anyway, is is that I have gone from film to film, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I like to say, and it's you know, it's not a joke, but it may sound funny. Is is that if I'm not making a film, I'm not eating. So oh, right, uh, and and you know, my wife and I have raised a family. We have three kids. Yes, and she works. Uh, so you know. I've been one of the lucky ones in a lot of ways right. for sure because I've been able to have longevity and been able to kind of continue to do what I do and I've mostly been able to make the films I want to make. Yeah. And part of the part of the answer to your question is is I I have to keep um when I'm I, I the way I like to work is I like to be heavily almost exclusively if I can focused on a single film but as okay. I get into the post part of that particular film, uh, and because I edit myself, yes. I, it's very, you know, it's very, uh, you know, um, <laughs> it, it's very hard to do this sometimes because it's so consuming. Right. Um, and how I, are you going to be I, developing projects at all if you're that consumed in your in, in the one that you're doing currently? Right. But I force myself to do that. Yeah. I, I'm sure that I I am now planting the seeds for the next thing yeah. so that when this one ends, I have a decent hope of moving on to something else right now now the other key has been that I also have had um, some commercial representation 
And over the years, it seems yeah. like when I really need uh, some money and I'm, <laughs> I'm between projects, some kind of commercial oriented thing will pop up. Usually it's like webisode yeah. advertising, you yeah, know, yeah. because it's longer and, you know, and and just more suits me. Yeah. Uh, so I've had that happen, which is which has been helpful. And then the, the third thing I'd mention is, is that I also on mine, you know, I wear multiple hats mm. um, as a filmmaker. So on any given project that I'm doing, um, when I, if, you know, when, when, when I'm able to raise the money for it, which I've been pretty, pretty lucky with, there's a, there's a substantial part of that budget that I can claim for myself as a filmmaker because I'm doing the job. I'm, I, you know, I am a producer, I'm the director in recent years I've been shooting. Um, you know, it's like I'm going backwards in my career and, (laughs) and then I'm also frequently more, way more often than not the, you know, one of the editors, if not the editor. And so, so I, you know, I'm able to tap into a number of the lines in my budget and, and pay myself to do it. But of course I have to do the work too. So, you know, it's not, it's not like free money. That conversation, the first of two actually, with Steve James, can be found in its entirety in episode number 62 of the podcast. The next conversation I'd like to highlight was only a couple of episodes later. It was episode number 64, and it too was from an alum of the acclaimed Cartemquin family, and it was with filmmaker Margaret Byrne. I was really struck with Margaret because she was so real, so genuine with me. Because she too, every day experiences so much of what we're all experiencing as doc lifers. She inherently understood the moment and the greater importance of the conversation that we were having about living this life of a doc filmmaker. I have a great doc family here in Chicago. People that I could probably call for anything um, and they would help me. And likewise, I would help them. Well, especially now being connected with Cartemquin, right? Yeah, Cartemquin is, I mean, that is the greatest thing about working with Cartemquin is working with Gordon hmm. um, and, and having a community of people hmm. that are really supportive. And, and it's not it's not competitive. It's like we're all trying to help each other tell these stories that, that um, we're invested in. And, and, and really making out, you know, a lot of us don't have funded, fully funded films. Most of us. Most of us don't. So, <laughs> so how are we cobbling this together and getting it done? Yeah. Yeah. How does it, how does, how does working as a doc filmmaker, um, spending this time as a doc lifer, if you will, if you will, as we like to call it here on the show, how does that affect one's personal life? How does it, how has, how has being a doc filmmaker affected your personal life, Margaret? My personal life. I mean, one thing is I'm, one thing is I'm a single parent. And so I think that that probably dictates more than anything for me. Yeah. Cause that's sort of my, you know, my primary job in life is to make sure that Violet is, has everything she needs and is, you know, growing into an amazing person. Yes. And and so I've sort of built everything I do around that. And so that means that I left New York and I came to Chicago, mm-hmm. which allowed me to not have to pay as many bills. So I don't have to work, you know, I don't have to do um, marketing work at Universal, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And some people would look at this as like, well, you've stepped down. Yes, of course. You, right. You know? But I'm like, no, but I'm actually 
No, I just increased my life. (laughs) I'm giving myself the opportunity to be able to tell these stories. Nobody else is giving me the opportunity. I have two directing credits uh, for documentary films. Yes. And you want to know why? Because I went out and made them. And I had a friend like John along the way who helped me make this. This film, I'm shooting it myself. And I have a couple people that are helping and supporting me. And that's me building my own, making my own opportunities. It is. That's you building your own doc life in many ways. Because when you have somebody come to you and say, here's the money to make a movie, Hmm. there's going to be a whole set of rules that comes with that. (laughs) I mean, in most situations. Yes. And so I'm, I'm just very careful of what I choose to work on. And, and I think, I think that's important because it's easy to get caught up. You know, it's like, I know a lot of people in New York who are, have such great ideas and aspirations, but they're working in reality television because it's paying the bills. I've done plenty of work in reality television. I get it. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm really trying to just stay focused and stay on this path. And hopefully, you know, I teach it to colleges and and I really enjoy that. I like doing it part time, but I am a full time filmmaker. Yes. And, you know, as as I develop more projects, I hope that this will become sustainable for me. Right. And um, in the meantime, I figure it out and make it work Mm. so that my second priority is getting the film done. Mm. First priority is Violet. Second priority is the film. Yeah. Sounds very familiar. (laughs) It sounds very (laughs) familiar. That's, that's the story of my, of, uh, of, of Steph's in my lives. We have a, we have a a one and a half year old and and, and a son that just turned four years old. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And you know what, you know, what has been great about this film journey too, is Mm. that I've had Violet and Kiki, who's, um, he's the little boy that's in Raising Bertie. Yes. Right. Day Day's nephew. So he stayed with us during the summers. Oh, him wow. and Violet are a lot like brother and sister. Yeah. And so they were on with me last summer on our theatrical tour. Yeah. And those two were selling T-shirts. And, <laughs> and, and at some points, they'd get up and speak to to announce the T-shirts. And then Violet would want to talk about other things. But it was just <laughs> a great experience for them to be, you know, traveling to all these different places and talking to different people. And, you know, it had its stressful moments too, because my car broke down and we were (laughs) stranded and it's like me and two kids. And I'm trying to like, at the same time, you know, we're traveling from one state to another and I'm like trying to keep up with like the press things I have to do. So I have like Skype (laughs) interview and he's like, do you have to be in the car? And I'm just sort of like, there's two kids in the back that he can't see. And I'm kind of like, they're quiet right now. And you're asking me if I have to be in the car right now. (laughs) Like, this is it. This is what you get. (laughs) Later, it was in episode number 68. I don't know what was happening in the 60s, by the way. Apparently, I was really on to something. I was deep in conversation with the nephews of actor Kurt Russell, McLean and Chapman Way. And they had just released the Netflix series Wild Wild Country. And it was a series everyone seemed to be talking about. And I was happy to be talking with Mac and Chap about the series and their experience as doc filmmakers. Were what can I, now? I understand, of course, you guys had made a connection, right? You'd made a connection at Sundance, and that's huge. But 
I wonder if there's anything that you could share with us about maybe approaching one of these platforms, whether it's a Netflix or a Hulu or an Amazon. How can we approach these platforms with an idea for a doc series? Would you recommend approaching them with the idea or would you recommend approaching them, say, with a sizzle reel? Yes, I think it obviously depends on like the level of previous success you've had, the previous film festivals you've played at. I think kind of the most important thing is once, you know, is to get some sort of sales agent on board your project. Um, someone that is uh, has a, a history of, of selling projects to Hulu or Amazon or Netflix. You know, there's a, there's a handful of, of really great um, agents that, that can set up these meetings for you connections. Ours is, you know, Josh and Dan Braun of Submarine Entertainment that, you know, have worked extensively with many different distribution companies. Um, and they were really important in, in kind of setting up those initial meetings yeah. with Netflix. Um, I think it's vital. The other way to go about it is it seems to me that a lot of these companies are tending now to work with the same kind of production companies over and over. Mm. I mean, place like Netflix, a place like Amazon, they have a ton of incredible executives, but they have a ton of projects and it's not really feasible for them to run production on these projects. So they kind of co-produce along with other production companies. Right. Um, and so whether that be participant media or, or, or similar companies like that, I think if you can get your project or your sizzle reel in, in, in front of those people, um, that's also a great step in, into, into getting someone like Netflix interested in your project. Yeah, this is McLean. I like just to add my two cents too would be, I think it, in, as far as like the question of like whether to make like a sizzle reel or like a teaser or something that's going to give them an idea of the project. Um, I think that it kind of comes down to basically how your idea for your documentary or documentary series is going to sound in a pitch. Mm. And so for us with Roshnish Purim, I don't think we pitched a single executive that ever said that they knew the story. <laughs> <laughs> so you really got to pitch this. <laughs> a sizzle reel to like show them that this happened, uh, you know, like if you're going in and let's say you have access to Michael Jordan and Michael Jordan's willing to sit down and you're going to do the big Michael Jordan bio doc, mm, you know, mm. um, like yeah, you can go in and pitch that probably without a sizzle reel. And like a lot of executives are going to lean forward because of your access or your storytelling capabilities or anything like that. Right. And so like we kind of, we knew going in, pitching an episodic documentary series on Roshni's Purim. I mean, like literally the reactions were like Roshni's what? Like Bhagwan what? Like I've never even heard of this. Like, so we knew like we needed to come in strong with something that was going to like kind of open their eyes a little bit to like, wow, I had no idea this happened. And then we were kind of uniquely able to turn that into an advantage where it was like, that was kind of the hook of the story. And uh -huh. wow has been out on Netflix for like 10 or 11 days now so we've gotten a lot of our perception we've gotten back and, and feedback and it seems to be like a lot of people are attaching onto that which I always believed in with the story of Roshni's Purim because yeah. people of Oregon just don't know this story um, <laughs> that's right I think their reaction is well how did I not know about this and so that kind of ended up playing to our advantage I think in terms of working with Netflix at what point in the production of Wild Wild Country did they begin funding for you guys and did they end up funding for the whole production at some point um, yeah, it was a little bit interesting. We kind of, so after we got, we teamed up with Josh and Dan Braun, we teamed up with Mark and Jay Duplass, yeah. uh, Duplass Brothers Productions, and they were kind of the first to kind of start, you know, fronting us money um, so that we could kind of begin interviews. Okay. And it was 
pretty fairly early on in the process um, that we then teamed up with Netflix as well. Okay. And so I can't, I, we can't quite discuss the exact uh, details of, course. Of, of the arrangement, but um, yeah, the Duplass brothers were the first to kind of give us money just to kind of start along with our own money that, that we invested. Right. Um, and then fairly early on, once we kind of got all of our characters on board and started shooting, um, Netflix uh, came on board as well. In episode number 82, I spoke with Taoist monk, Qigong master, director of both Oriental Medicine as well as books and documentary films, Pedram Shojai. As part of our conversation, Pedram talked about how he built an audience for his film in a rather unique way, and how this became a formula for his filmmaking ventures, and a very sustainable one at that, from that point on. Yeah, I had uh, I had no brand, right? Yeah, I yeah, had yeah. No, none of that happening. And so, but... And and now it's like we do all this like kind of sophisticated, you know, analysis of audiences mm. and trying to figure out, you know, you know, who these people are and what keeps them up at night and all that. Yeah. At that time, uh, you know, I didn't have it per se, but boy, did I have it, man. I had thousands of patients, man. I was on the, uh, the bleeding edge of clinical care where these people would come to me like, help me, Obi-Wan, you're my only hope. And right. I'm just like, man. Your chart is like six inches thick and I got to like read this and figure out why everyone else failed you and what I got to, you know, so I knew, I knew why people were suffering every single day. Mm. And and so, you know, I saw, you know, when I started making this thing, especially like, you know, all my two camera throws and all that is like, I'm just looking at patients in my history that I'm talking to. And so you do all this market research, uh, you know, in filmmaking now, and we start looking at, you know, what the, you know, who's going to, you know, what's this going to trend towards and who's going to share this and who our coalition partners are. And, you know, you get cute. But at that time, man, it was just like, I knew, I mean, when people come to me, they give me a chief complaint as a physician, right? They're complaining to me. They're telling me what's wrong. Right. So, you know, and, and like, you know, I don't care how good you are at surveying, you know, it's how hard it is to get people to honestly, you know, tell you what's wrong so that you can help them um, in, in like your, your filmmaking. So like, you know, I had this distinct advantage of having thousands of people already kind of come in and, yeah, and cry yeah. to me about life. Yeah. And I knew exactly what the problem was. And so, and then, and then to, to kind of, you know, follow up on the point that you made is no, I didn't have a list. So what I did was I made a movie that everyone else's audiences wanted to see. Mm. And then I created affiliate arrangements where, you know, 50% of my hundred dollar, you know, lifestyle program went straight back to the affiliates. And I went and drummed up a bunch of people in the health community to be uh, like, Hey, I made this film and it's going to really help you, you know, kind of, explain what's going on to the people uh, in your audience. So I had, you know, hundreds of thousands of people come in and, you know, I had 125,000 emails in the first three weeks. I mean, that's a lot of people. It's like, you know, that's a prop stadium full of people. And now listen, talk, you know, in in online stuff, they talk about all this, like, you know, these videos and indoctrination and all that. I just gave someone 54 minutes of a pure give of a, of a, you know, film that I spent my life savings on designed to help and so not only have I inspired them and educated them, I've earned their trust. So, you know, a few thousand of them, you know, I don't know how many it was at this point. I got it, yeah. you know, like those are old stats. Yeah. But a few thousand of them are like, yeah, man, here's a hundred bucks. Totally. Here's 200 bucks. Yeah. I want the lifestyle program, <laughs> exactly, right? Exactly, of course. Yeah, and then you keep serving them and you keep serving them. And so it becomes this virtuous cycle where then I had money in the bank to fund my own next movie. That's I didn't right. have to take I don't have to take anyone's money and, you know, which is so brilliant. That's so brilliant for doc filmmakers, because that is such a, a, a rare occurrence that, that, you know, after the first film that we actually are able to put ourselves in a position 
uh, financially to not have to depend on someone to fund the next film and maybe the next one. That's a, that's a rarity indeed. And there's very little quiet money out there, right? Yeah. Like, you know, there, there are a lot of people willing to, you know, help you push their agenda and their cause and you lose creative control. Right. And I, I didn't get into this to be a dancing monkey. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I, I, I needed to do what I needed to do. And this is my Dharma. Like I'm, I, I, you know, just cause I'm not in the monastery doesn't mean I'm not doing that work. In the final episode of this past season, I had the pleasure of speaking with Academy Award-nominated and Emmy Award-winning doc filmmaker Irene Taylor Brodsky. As part of our discussion, she shared with us her approach to filming with family members, and she also talked about the importance of making your audience the hero of the journey of your film. I tell you, you have to be ruthless. And the reason why you have to be ruthless is because... Our limbic system is kicking into high gear when you're filming people you love. Or even if you're filming strangers, but you're highly empathic to their situation, you have all sorts of blind spots, right? Because you don't want to stop filming. You're not being a good editor. You're not quite thinking like a director. You're thinking from this place of love and empathy and oh, well, I don't want to turn the camera off right now because this person's saying something that's so meaningful to them. But meanwhile, off to my right is where the real story is occurring. Yeah. So you have to make these like really difficult decisions from, from the very get-go about A, where to point the camera, hmm. right? And that's, and that's hard. When you have three children and you love them equally, but you've decided to make a film about one of them, yeah, right. I mean, think about that, right? <laughs> think about think about the fallout of that, yeah, right? So, you know, I'm a mother. I'm a committed mother, and I had to be acutely aware of that. Irene, let us know now how we can see Moonlight Sonata, Deafness, and Three Movements. The film is now... Um, in theatrical release in the United States. So for the month of October, um, we've already played throughout September in about 15 cities. And throughout October, we're going to be in Arizona, Portland, Oregon, Denver, Mm. Peora, Arizona, Scottsdale, um, South Lake, Texas, Detroit, Vancouver, Washington, Seattle, Washington. We are, we are really, um, we're going to St. Louis. Um, we're playing all over Colorado, Um, And then in December, we are very fortunate to be getting a domestic broadcast on HBO and shortly after that, a global broadcast on HBO. So um, hopefully around the world, this film will be available to audiences in in many countries and on many airlines. (laughs) And many airlines as well. I love it. I love it. Irene, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been enlightening on a number of levels. It's been extremely thoughtful. Uh, It's been very insightful uh, for so many doc filmmakers that will be listening to this. Is there a parting comment that you can make to doc filmmakers? Because again, I think I said to you early on before we started recording, a lot of our audience are very, very well acquainted with video production, but this might be their first or second documentary film that they're doing themselves. Can you leave us with some sort of uh, I don't know, motivational or inspirational thought, or if there's something that you feel like I've left out in this conversation that you, you, you think, Chris, I want doc filmmakers to know this about the doc filmmaking journey. What, what would that be, Irene? Well, that's like the hardest question of the whole I know, interview. I know. <laughs> I guess um, there's a few things that I've said and thought about in this interview that I've never thought about before, um, thanks to your question asking. Um, <laughs> No, I, I, I really mean that. I really mean that. I appreciate um, that. 
And so, yeah, well, you know, you're asking, you're asking the two of us to really think about documentary as sort of a, a lifestyle choice. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, right. and I think that, um, I think that the one thing that keeps me going as a filmmaker is how much my filmmaking reinforces what I want to believe about the world we live in, which is that we have much more in common than we are different. Mm. from one another. And if you can find a way, even if you're working with the most idiosyncratic character or situation in a, in a, in a country where there is no analogy and there is no like-minded person or anything, if you can somehow make your audience the hero of that journey, and you're always thinking about what is it about my character and my film that makes my audience connect with that character Mm. if you're constantly thinking about your audience and i don't mean in a pandering way in a commercially minded way but like why am i asking you to sit down and watch my 90 minute film Mm. about this very idiosyncratic thing in my case with moonlight sonata that's my family you guys all have your own family why should i make you sit down for 90 of your good minutes and look at my family because i really promise you there's going to be something about my family that makes you feel at home and it makes you not always comfortably feel at home but you're going to feel at home you know and I think that maybe really that's what kind of keeps me going through the films that don't sell and all the interviews where I feel like a dumbass when I'm finished because I didn't (laughs) ask the right questions or I blew it or I really had an opportunity to really make a difference and get something valuable or meaningful out of that conversation. And I screwed it up, you know, but you keep going because when you do nail it, or even when you get it partially right, you know, the rewards are really good. They're really good. It's been another great season, Doc Lifers. And as always, it means a lot that you've found your way to us and continue to listen to us episode after episode. Now, we've got plenty more great guests and episodes coming your way for season three of the podcast. And we're very much looking forward to bringing these to you. And of course, we now have our weekly workshops that we've recently put together that I am personally very much looking forward to bringing to you beginning on January 8th. If you like this show, I think you'll want to be a part of the online and in-person workshops that we have coming your way in 2020. So be sure to check out the documentarylife.com slash workshops if you're serious about transforming your doc films and your doc lives in the new year. Until next time, I remain your host, Chris G. Parkhurst. Thank you for listening to The Documentary Life.